Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of October 17th, 2019. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of New Film School, George Edelman. Hi. And I'm here with Director, Cinematographer, formerly of Pixar, Charlene Wang. Hi. And we're going to be talking about Roger Deakins' work on 1917. We're going to be talking about some tech news with Sigma announcing the release date on their FP camera. We've got 10 lessons on screenwriting from Fleabag. All that and an Ask No Film School about teaching high school students this week on the No Film School podcast. Since 1996, Film Tools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production. No matter your filmmaking needs, Film Tools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot. This week, Film Tools is offering No Film School listeners 5% off qualifying purchases when they shop at filmtools.com. All you have to do is enter code NFSPOD at checkout. That is N-F-S-P-O-D at checkout to get 5% off your purchases at filmtools.com. Whether you need a new stinger, a GoPro, or a cart, make sure you head over to filmtools.com and use code NFSPOD at checkout to get 5% off your next equipment purchase. All right, so the first story this week, we ran a post that was a behind-the-scenes video interviewing Roger Deakins talking about 1917. 1917 is the new Sam Mendes movie. Uh, Mendes and uh, Deakins have worked together before. But the interesting thing about this one is it is entirely one shot. And also, really interestingly, everything is airy. So it is airy lenses, the airy signature primes, and the airy mini LF camera. And the Airy Trinity camera system. So, you know, Steadicam is obviously very dominant in the vest stabilizer market, but Aries had their Trinity system for a while. And uh, I, I actually have never seen, like, an Airy camera with Airy lenses on an Airy stabilizer used for the whole movie. <laughs> it's easier on this movie because it's all one shot. So it's like whatever setup they used for that one shot is the entirety of the movie. Um, but, yeah, that was the top thing t- uh, this week. Honestly, it is always interesting to hear Deacon's takes on things because he is pleasantly unpretentious. Uh, I remember mm-hmm. back when we were first moving from film to digital, he was, you know, open to moving to digital. He's also one of those guys who was like, guys, go back to those 70s movies you love. Like, they're not that high resolution. Like, everybody's obsessed with this really high resolution film image that we're getting from modern film stocks. But in the 70s, you know, film stocks did not have insanely high resolution. So those movies that you're saying you love so much, the resolution was kind of low. So why are we all so obsessed with super high resolution and digital? And I thought that was a really great sort of very practical take at the time that really acknowledged the reality of like crafting images. Can you, uh, before we dig into more of this particular story, can you, uh, either both of you, one of you give a mm-hmm. little context on the Alexa um, the Alexa Mini LF, the Primes, the Stabilizer, just what they do, how they work together, what they're like. Okay. Aerie okay. is obviously the most dominant camera maker. If you look at the Academy Awards, the, all the digital uh, cinematography nominations are usually Alexa. And if you look at Sundance, uh, all of, you know, like 80% of the Sundance movies are shot on the Alexa Mini. So uh, Ari, you know, we've been seeing this big movement towards full frame cinematography. We used to use what was called like a super 35 millimeter sensor. Now we're moving towards this larger sensor, full frame. Sony has the Sony Venice. Uh, Red has the Monstro. Um, and now Alexa has the Alexa LF, which is sort of a full frame sensor size, large format sensor size. A bigger sensor gives you better low light reproduction, but a bigger sensor also lets you use different lenses 
for the same field of view. Because the sensor is physically larger, it's seeing more around the edges. So, you know, in Super 35, if I used a 14 millimeter lens, it's going to look one way. But if I bump up to the LF and I use a 14 millimeter lens, I'm going to see a much wider field of view. I'm going to mm -hmm. see more around the edges. So what that means is that a lot of times to get the same field of view that you would get out of like a 14 mil and 35 on a large format, you might use a 28 millimeter. And one of the things that Deakins really talks about eloquently in that thing is like, it's sort of interesting to finally be able to do these like super big close-ups where you're really getting the lens close to people mm -hmm. without a lot of the distortion that you seem sometimes get from wider lenses. That 14 millimeter lens is going to distort a little bit if you really get it up in someone's grill piece. But then you're on a 28, <laughs> you're able to get there really close and you're able to have less distorted. So when we talk about full frame cinema, we're talking about better low light reproduction obviously that's one of the nice things about a big sensor but we're also talking about a different field of view from the lenses that that gives us different lens choices and that's what we really like about it Ari started lf with the full-size lf which is a monster of a camera i handheld it in august on a job and i i felt like i was back in the 35 anamorphic days with like a thousand oh, right. like it's a big old body um but then they came out with a mini the lf mini um and you know it was first announced in april and already Deacons has shot a movie on it. So I'm wondering if somehow he shot it before. I don't know what the shoot date was on the 1917. Uh, but if they shot before April, then he was shooting with one before anybody else, which, you know, is the perks of being Deacons. Um, you know, right. I, th I think if anybody deserves to get to use it early, it would be him. Maybe they shot in June. I don't actually know much about the production. Um, and then the signature primes are Aries full frame lenses. Because, again, when you bump up lenses, you need to be able to cover that full frame sensor. And the signature primes are, you know, everything you ever wanted in a lens. Now, I've, I've seen the price sheet on the signature primes. Uh, they start, I think they're like $28,000 a lens. And then there's a couple of them that are like $36,000. Um, so they're not inexpensive lenses. Uh, and I don't think Deacons owns them. I mean, you rented them. And, and in fact, right. one of the nice things about a one-shot <laughs> movie is if you do your prep right, you just rent one lens. Like he did all his prep and he was like, it's a 28. We only need to rent the 28. We're not even renting the full set. Maybe. I think I think because uh, actually because they shot it's a one shot movie. They only used a 40 millimeter lens. And he said he also used maybe a 35 millimeter for some of the other some a few shots here and there. But they basically stayed on 40 millimeter. So that's a cheaper um, rental, right? Because, you know, you're renting a full <laughs> set of lenses versus the thing. I mean, in that case, you're even thinking, do I just buy the 40 millimeter because I'm shooting a whole movie on it and then right. I own the one <laughs> and then I can start building a package out later. Um, so, yeah, so Is that's Deacon's the... an owner operator? <laughs> it doesn't seem like he would be. <laughs> no, I suspect he's a renter. <laughs> Although he did say in the interview he might just shoot everything for the rest of his career on the mini LF. Um, yeah, yeah, wow. he did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So did so, they create the signature prime lenses for the these uh, large format uh, yeah. Alexa? So they're pretty, they're very new then. These, they're about a year and a half old. First. So they came right. out with the signatures at the same time. Zeiss came out with the Supremes. Um, and they're uh, both the full, you know, the, the top of the line, high end, uh, yeah. full frame. It's really funny because, you know, when I started, the Master Primes had just come out, and the Master Primes right. were so exciting, and a friend of mine would do yeah. a job with the Master Primes, and I'd be like, oh my god, you had the budget to rent Masters on that, and I would hear Steadicam Ops bitching about the Masters because they were so heavy, and I'd be like, I want to shoot with Masters, and now because Masters only cover Super 35, they're actually kind of like sort of unpopular at the moment. I mean, they're not like totally unpopular, but like you can now get affordable rentals on Master Primes because the Supremes and the um, 
signatures have really taken over in a way um, because they cover the full frame. This movie is, you know, despite, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to be interested and excited about this movie, but the use of this tech together is extremely unique. Right. And first time we're going to see these things in action together um, in the hands of one of the great DPs alive. Although although I I am going to say (laughs) the same thing. This is exciting stuff. The same thing I always say for any one-shot movie is that the challenge of a one-shot movie is not lighting or camera blocking, it's writing. Because if you really like, hmm. if you're if you're engaged in editorial, you know how much of a script gets rewritten in post production and massaged, right. and moments get played. And like, I haven't seen a one shot movie. I'm sure someone's going to point out some one shot movie I'm forgetting. But like, Russian Ark, fascinating movie, wildly boring for long sequences. Like, it's really hard to build a coherent narrative that is super engaging over the period. So the thing that's most exciting to me about 1917 is Sam Mendes is very smart and is a very dynamic storyteller and works very closely with really interesting writers. And I'm really excited to see not only like the camera work, because obviously Deacons is great, but I'm really excited to see like how it is written where it, it, you know, it requires a high, highly precise style of writing and directing to really execute on a one shot and have it continue to be interesting. So that's the thing that's making me, because even Birdman, Does, I felt like, had really great points and then points where I was like, I feel like this would be better with some editing. Yeah, mm-hmm. so let's talk about the one-shot thing for a second because it's a one-shot movie. Birdman was a one-shot movie, sort of, right? Yeah. And Russian Arc, I remember very clearly. I went to the theater excited about this idea of a one-shot movie and, yes, was also bored, but also kind of marveled at what it was. But Russian Ark was made in a very different time than Birdman, and this, again, this is a very different time. Like, the technology keeps changing and the ability to... Isn't Rope a one-shot well, movie? But that's, that's right, the thing. Yeah. Is like, but that's the great example. That's why Rope is such a great example, because Rope right. is, like, and really well-written. And Rope is well Hitchcock, for those, yeah. Yeah, for those who don't know. Rope is really fascinating to watch, because the suspense, the Hitchcock... Hitchcockian suspense is taught despite it being one shot. But they do they have a couple moments where they change the reels and stuff. Well, every you know, ten minutes when we they say have to one cut, but they're trying to right, hide should, the cut. They're pretending there's no cut every ten minutes. Yes. Right. right. We should talk about, or maybe one of you should talk about one shot movies, what does that really mean in practice, right? <laughs> like <laughs> like it's not like it it's not like production took two hours exactly because they did a take, you know, for the whole movie. Well, it, I mean, it's, I mean, I think that's the goal with 1917, isn't it? Is that it fe- that it was really big takes, but like rope, you know, the physical. It's all about the technology that lets you do it. The physical ability to do a one shot movie on film. The biggest loads you could get were thousand foot loads, and thousand foot loads were about ten minutes of film. So they had to find a way to fake a cut every ten minutes on Russian Ark. They had to shoot straight into a computer because tape wasn't long enough to make the movie. And then they had to drag the computer around on like a little wheelie cart, like a little office cart, (laughs) um, tethered to the camera in order to shoot straight into the computer because tape wasn't long enough for that movie. Um, No offense, Russian Ark. I'm sure you would acknowledge that some parts were slower than others. And it's like impressive that it exists. Um, But now we're in a place where it's not so technically... You know, with the right setup, you can yeah. you can easily shoot two hours uh, of beautiful footage into a camera. Also, with uh, visual effects, you can also hide whatever cuts you need to make in between transitions. Much in a much more different in a much different way now on digital than 
it's interesting that he's choosing a very old school approach to making a one shot film and promoting it as such, because with the, you know, with technology today, you can do a lot of masking and hiding um, through, you know, different visual effects and through different setups on, on set. Um, if you look at the... And isn't that what Birdman did? Uh, Birdman, yes, I, I think so. Yeah. And I think they also did a lot of like moving parts on the sets with like the walls production design. I don't, I think there were some movable parts on set. Uh, as far as choreography, right. and I think what's interesting about 1917 is that they're outdoors, in you know during a, a war scene throughout the entire movie is a war scene, and it's you know under yeah. two hours. So to stitch up those places, those those uh, locations together is like you know it's such a challenge, and like the spaces are so huge, and I'm really curious about how they're trying, how they like bring it all together. Um, how much post they had to use to match, you know, all this, uh, the the location and the landscape as well as the weather. Yeah, I saw the trailer uh, when I went to the. Th- I've seen trailers on. For some reason, when I saw the trailer in the theater, I was just. I just kept thinking, "Oh my god!" And this is one shot. Like it was. Like, <laughs> it just. It was like because you know trailers cut up. Obviously, the trailer is not one shot. Right. It just feels like how could this be one shot? Because it felt like it was doing so many different things. So I'm very very curious. All right, 1917. All right, so the next story of the week is Sigma is coming out with a new camera, and they've announced pricing and shipping date for their new Sigma FP, and it is going to be shipping on October 25th for $1,899. So a little bit of a refresher. I can't remember if we've talked about the FP on this podcast or not. I don't think we have. Um Way back. We've we, definitely written about it up on No yes, Film School a lot, th- so you, there's, there's a lot of stories on the site about the Sigma FP. Yeah, but if you're only a listener, a little bit of a brief overview on the Sigma FP. So, it is a full-frame camera with the Leica, or it's not the L, Leica L-mount, it's the L-mount lens, which is a open-source mount. It's a cooperative mount designed by Sigma and Panasonic and Leica together. So Sigma's going to make lenses for it. Panasonic's going to make lenses for it. Leica's going to make lenses for it. But it's also a really shallow flange focal distance, so you can adapt it to PL, you can adapt it to EF. Um, but, so, you know, you might be thinking, there's a lot of lens, uh, cameras like that. There's the Sony a7 line, and there's the Panasonic SH-1. This is really the second camera after the original Blackmagic Pocket that really feels like it's deliberately trying to bridge the gap between stills and motion. It is. It feels very much in specs and design like a small video camera in a way that like the SH-1 and the A7 and all of those cameras, which are great, and I'm sure we're going to see beautiful footage from them, still don't necessarily feel as targeted towards filmmakers as this does. Like, for instance, this camera can do 12-bit 4K uh, recording to an SSD. It can't do it to an SD card because SD cards aren't fast enough. But like, twelve bit recording in four K to an SD to an SSD is like a phenomenal feature. A lot of filmmakers will love. Um, so it's like the Blackmagic Pocket, except it's full frame. And going back to the you know following up on the Arial F, that full frame is going to give you a different field of view on the lenses. It's going to give you a variety of um, lens adapters that you can use. You can use a variety of lenses. And Sigma's built in a whole bunch of features that I think filmmakers are really going to appreciate. One of them is director's viewfinder mode. So in the camera, pre-programmed are the the sensor sizes for a bunch of other cameras. So let's say you're on an Alexa LF shoot. That's a big, heavy camera. What you don't want to have to like carry that camera around to preview your shots. So you can stick the lens on the FP, 
tell the FP you're shooting um, Alexa, and then it'll show you the frame lines that should perfectly mirror what an Alexa would see. So now you can like preview wow. your shot. You can like walk around with the lens. You can even shoot a little video, and the framing should be identical to what the LF is going to do or whatever other camera is sort of built into the menus. You're shooting Red Monstro or Red Dragon or whatever it is. All of those are sort of built in. So it's going to be a really nice director's monitor tool, I think, that a lot of directors are going to appreciate. I think you're going to end up seeing a lot of people like have this on set. They'll use it as director's monitor, and then they'll set it up as a C camera. Um, the big things that are sort of – I mean, look, it's uh, an eight, it's a under $2,000 camera. So I'm going to be nitpicky on the things that I'm still worried about. First off, they brag a lot about their heatsink. And that's really exciting that they're, like, putting that first and foremost because these cameras do overheat. Like, cameras overheat. A lot of stills cameras trying to shoot video overheat. So the fact that they're really bragging about their heat sink makes me excited that they've really thought about this. The things we're wondering about are, like, it shoots to RAW, but it shoots to Cinema DNG, which nobody loves because the files are too big. The hope is that it's <laughs> going to give us RAW over HDMI. Yeah. And that would be good. And then the only other thing, and look, it's an $1,800 camera. You're not going to get anything. The only other thing is that the audio input is not a mini XLR. It's a 3.8, 3.5 millimeter jack, which like is a little bummer because it's really nice to have a quarter, uh, a mini XLR in the Blackmagic pocket. You're never going to like knock the cable out. But frankly, if you're using dual system recording and you have a mixer recording to like a sound device at 633 or a mix pre or something, you don't need an audio input. So I'm really excited about this camera. This and the SH1, I'm like super excited about. Also excited about the Panasonic, the Blackmagic Pocket 6K. But the price is really compelling on a camera that I think is going to be so flexible for a lot of filmmakers. Yeah. So does this kind of like when you talk about using it as a director's monitor and almost in like previs and stuff, do, does a camera like this and the, just the availability of like high quality cameras at, at lower prices sort of change the way pre-visualization pre and storyboarding and shot listing and all of that works? Because in a way, can't people just use, can they just grab some shots and like share it almost instantly and show exactly what they're looking to do? I mean, even, I'm even thinking about things like with the iPhone 11, like you can't obviously replicate what you're going to see through an Alexa with that, but you can just so quickly and easily put together exactly what you want things to look like and share them. That doesn't that sort of become the best tool for, for prep. Well, what's interesting about that is that you use the word share two or three times. And what's really important. I think about this camera for me is that like, yes, technically before I could stand on set with like whatever camera I own and I could shoot like stills that were sort of good previs stills. But when you're sharing things, especially if you're sharing with people offsite, which happens all the time, you're emailing a producer or a client right. or somebody, and you're using a different camera that has a different field of view that doesn't, and you're not using the same lens, it's like a general look, but it's not the same. Right, and right. really, if you're sharing remotely, you want things to be as accurate as if you physically possibly can. And so the dream was always, I remember when the, what was it, the 70, no, the GH3 first came out. Everyone was like, oh my God, the GH3 is the next director's viewfinder. And in fact, Panavision back in the day had a 1D, I think, or a 5D Mark I that they converted to Panavision mount 
for doing this very thing with um, because they're full frame sensor, so you could window it down to super 35 size. So yeah, I mean, I think this is going to change the way in which we communicate on set. I also, you know, like I pretty regularly, the, like I'm a big fan of block light, rehearse, tweak, shoot, blurts, block light, rehearse, tweak, shoot. And usually when you're doing the blocking rehearsal, um, you know, you've either got Artemis up on your iPad but even Artemis, which is right. a great app, if you guys haven't used Artemis, it's wonderful. Yep. It's still guessing at field of view and you can't attach the real lenses. But if right. you're on the shoot right. and you've got the real lenses, grab that 40 millimeter Supreme Prime, put it on the Sony F- the Sigma FP, really walk through the blocking, shoot it on video and or um, snap stills of it, and then download all those stills and while lighting is happening the DIT is turning it into a photo boards or, you know, or the director's assistant or however it's working so that that whole plan is getting communicated to people and all that information is getting sort of uh, distributed to the crew. Um, I mean, if nothing else, letting art department know exactly what your framing is going to be so that they can finish dressing precisely only the parts of the set they need to dress and not worry about the other parts like, I think that there are going to be things like that that are going to happen. Yeah, to speak to that point, I think it's a great communication tool for, for uh, different departments on set because pre-visualization actually is a very long process where you're sort of guessing in the dark about how an action scene or a scene is going to play out. And you have to do it in the computer, which is very time-consuming. It's very labor-intensive and a lot of, you know, like uh, the lenses and the, the location, the sets have to be kind of roughed in but if you have this camera on set with the proper lens it's a very fast communication tool and I'm actually pretty excited about that aspect of this camera I'm still thinking about how it compares to like the pocket cinema 4k or 6k 6k um it doesn't have because you know if, as a camera or b camera c camera doesn't it's so far the external is cinema dng is that right and I guess that's a little bit of so a it, te- it- yeah yeah, so it does Cinema DNG, right. which the Blackmagic Pocket used to do. It doesn't right. anymore, right. which is like, it is technically a raw format. It's just the files are it's so, so big, big. No one uses yeah. it. I've, yeah, yeah. I've never worked on a Cinema DNG project. Yeah, yeah. Me, me um, neither, exactly. And I think the Blackmagic has ProRes, and it's still Blackmagic raw. So I think in that sense, yep. if you're going to output all that information, it's still a little bit easier on that camera. But as far as like those... Well, m- except... Oh, it did say in the it did say in the release works with Atomos uh, right. Atomos yeah. Inferno, so that'll give you ProRes yeah. in twelve bit, yeah, and maybe ProRes mm. RAW, yeah, maybe unconfirmed, yeah, maybe it's not clear yet, right? We'll we'll find out in it's, two weeks. <laughs> we'll find out in two weeks. Yeah. I think it's shipping in about two weeks. Is that what they said? Well, but it might. We might not even know. I mean, it could be one of those things that they roll out a firmware update in the spring. You know, right. it could be like True. we ship it now and then later it supports it. So, but yeah. that is one of the, yeah. like, that is the real bummer. But I yeah. will say this. But it is a real pocket among, camera. Like it is small enough that it fits in your, pocket. in your pocket. Yeah, exactly. I'm excited about that. Yeah. As opposed to, no offense, Black Magic, <laughs> but those cameras do not fit in anything but the largest parka pockets. <laughs> um, and if you're not doing a parka shoot, that those are not pocket cameras. This camera will fit in your pocket. Yeah. This camera is like covered with quarter 20 mounts. It's designed expecting you to mount a lot of accessories, mm-hmm. which is like weird that a lot of other cameras don't. Like, you know, like a camera should have quarter 20 mounts all over. And right. the Blackmagic Pocket doesn't. Right. And this does. And I think that's actually a nice feature that like, sure, you'll Definitely. need a gauge. But yeah. 
sometimes you won't need a cage. Yeah. So I thought that was a really nice thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, Agreed. We'll, we'll need to revisit this camera once yeah. we've, it's out. Well, I've been pestering Sigma for a review. So hopefully we'll get to borrow yeah. one for a review yeah. for a week or two. The I old... pestered them for one for us, too. And they oh. said, we've heard from Charles. And I was like, oh, yeah. okay, good. Yeah. Just if you've already heard from him, then you're on the list. I'm actually, I'm going <laughs> to drop one last observation nice. on this camera that I have not had on this camera before, actually. So the first time this is occurring to me, the one thing that I need from this camera is a re- is like an L-mount pancake lens. If you guys don't know hmm. what a pancake lens is, a pancake lens is like popular in street photography. Yeah, that'd be it amazing. It's a very, very flat lens. Yeah, that's a great and, idea. And, uh, you know, I have an X-mount pan- pancake lens. It's like Can a 27 Can you tell us why? Can you... It's so you, you guys can tell actually me why it's a great idea. Put it, put it in your pocket. You can actually, yeah, exactly. It's it's ah, very okay. mobile, very discreet. You know, you can use it, yeah, for street videography, street uh, photography, yeah. anything. It just that makes that. Yeah. Well, it also just makes it something that you can like throw in your bag and always have with you, and you always know there's a lens on it. Yeah. So, like, let's say you buy this just to be your director's finder. You're going to buy the camera body and a PL mount adapter, but then you're also just going to want like a cheap, flat, small lens you can leave on it for all those days you're not on set. Yeah. And I'm sure if I Google it, there's an L mount pancake, but I can't think of one. And that is one place where, like, the Black Magic Pocket, there's so many MFT pancakes you can throw on there, and there's so many EF pancakes. And I honestly don't know if there's an L mount pancake lens yet, but we're going to have to look that up, or people are going to let me know on Twitter. How could you not know about my favorite pancake lens? It's already an L mount. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's. I'm excited about that for sure. Yeah. Are are you thinking of buying one, Charlene? Are, where are you on camera right now? Um, what do you have? Do you have one? I'm I'm looking to upgrade. Uh, I don't know how what range I should because you know the technology moves so quickly that once you upgrade oh, God, to something, exhausting. it just it's so hard to play that game. And so I'm trying to find that sweet spot where you're, you know, the value of what you're paying for kind of pays off in a certain amount of time and it's worth it. So. Um, this camera piqued my interest. I would definitely love to test it out and, and see how it compares to the pocket cinema 4K and 6K. Um, right now, what I'm reading is very attractive. You know, the specs are very attractive, but you know, I've never shot with that camera before. Yeah, I don't know how it works. But the other thing for me is it's it's about the whole ecosystem investment. Exactly. Because once you yeah. invest in lenses, then you're sort of like you're committing to. And I find honestly the idea of investing in L L mount glass that's yeah more appealing at this point than putting any money into MFT glass or EF glass. Yeah, because EF and MFT feel like they're sort of receding into the distance. Yeah. Whereas if like for instance you buy a bunch of L lenses and then in two years the Sigma FP gets replaced with the FP two, right? And it's like it'll probably still be L mount. Your lenses will still cover it. Because that's the thing is like I'm very happy with my Fuji investment. I've been mm-hmm. like I've shot. I shoot. I shoot with my XH1 like twice a week. I love it. Okay, nice. But I recognize we're gonna have to go. F- I'm, I recognize full frame is probably gonna be part of my life relatively soon. Yeah. And the FP and the SH1, it's the it's sort of big brother from Panasonic mm-hmm. are sort of interesting. Yeah. You're sort of a Panasonic guy then. I've picked up <laughs> yep. the breadcrumbs. You have a. You have a. I think what happens is I think people have. Um, a relationship to a manufacturer based on comfort level and nostalgia, which you've mentioned before. Oh yeah, just like what was the camera that I used at the beginning, and you've we've talked about DVX one hundred, um, baby. The DVX one hundred, yeah. But like, I think people end up the, there's a lot of people with the Sony AS seven 
that I feel like people have relationships to brands, right? And yeah. that's the comfort zone. So that's yeah. kind of like they want to – and that's where it gets so personal in the commenting and the message boards, right? Well, and that's what's funny. There was just a test that went around in the still photo blogs of uh, can you actually tell the color science apart from these cameras? So they were like, because everyone always likes to talk about like, oh, you know, that Canon color science or like Canon skin tones and whatever. And uh, so they did a Canon versus Fuji test where it was like blind and you had to guess which one was which. They would shoot the same shot with different cameras. And um, it's just interesting to realize that like, first off, the differences are not as big as we think they are. And sometimes it's really hard to guess which one is which. Uh, I got it wrong. I got it right like 80% of the time. And I felt like very smart about that but that's still 20 percent of the time i was totally wrong about canon versus fuji so yeah there's emotion tied up in all this which also makes this an interesting place for sigma because sigma is someplace where a lot of people really love their lenses i know a lot of tv shows have moved over with the sigma cine primes but we don't really have an emotional attachment to their camera bodies they have been making camera bodies for a while but they've been making foveon bodies if you guys don't know foveon it's a it's a different kind of sensor and it's beautiful but slow so we're not going to see like a Foveon video camera anytime soon. So it's interesting to have people maybe try and make, I feel like Sigma's piling in the features here because they're smart enough to know that nobody has an emotional attachment to Sigma cameras or filmmakers don't. So they're just going to be like, all right, how about every feature you want? How about quarter 20 <laughs> mounts? How about director's <laughs> viewfinder mode? How about 12-bit 4K internal? How about like, like all of the features? Because they know that, you know, I have no nostalgia for Sigma bodies. I have a lot of attachment to Sigma yeah. lenses at this point. Right. Brand loyalty for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a thing. <laughs> This week's episode of the No Film School podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot. This week, FilmTools is offering No Film School listeners 5% off qualifying purchases when they shop at FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code NFSPOD at checkout. That is N-F-S-P-O-D at checkout to get 5% off your purchases at FilmTools.com. Whether you need a new stinger, a GoPro, or a cart, make sure you head over to FilmTools.com and use code NFSPOD at checkout to get 5% off your next equipment purchase. All right. Now we're back from ads. We're back from ads. We're back from ads talking about 10 great tips you can learn from Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Fleabag. This was a post we ran this week uh, from Jason Hellerman, who covers a lot of screenwriting stuff Mm -hmm. for us. And um, so first off, I mean, the first thing we have to say is, oh, my God, if you haven't watched Fleabag, go watch Fleabag. (laughs) Um, Is there a better written TV show in the last five years? It's like it's just so well written. It's so good. Um, So I like the perspective that the author took of like, let's look at a show that like is clearly phenomenally well written and let's look at what we can learn from its writing. Uh, The big takeaway for me was I, there was the first post was that she always focused on having multiple things going on in a scene at a given time. And that was something that I thought was a really good piece of advice that a lot of people forget you know, there's a lot of screenwriting that's like, all right, you need to have your uh, you need to have your protagonist and your antagonist and you need to have them pursuing things and their goals need to be in conflict. But in reality, in life, it's rare that we have like one thing happening. Like, yes, one I'm objective. late for the meeting. Yeah, yeah one it's obstacle. Like, yeah. And so she had this really interesting point where she's like, yes, someone might have their one objective and their one obstacle, but they also might be like hungry 
or like hot or like (laughs) tired. And like, as soon as I read that that was one of the things she talked about in the writing of Fleabag, it like completely, it rings so true in the show that so much of the reality of these characters is that like, you very much really see them carrying with them the emotional like baggage or hangover of the previous scene in a way that I think doesn't happen a lot with a lot of writing where it's like they're so focused on objective and where the characters are going and what's happening that like the emotional resonances of big moments are often lost. And in Fleabag, you definitely have the sense of like the emotional resonance of a thing that has just happened is still just sort of like hanging in the air and floating on a person. And you also have a sense of like they might be hungry or whatnot. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of cool things to take away in here. We try to do things like this with, we talk about popular directors on No Film School, or we'll write about a DP, or we'll find an interview one of these types of people did. But I think that moving towards what some of these big showrunners and TV writers do, because like we've talked about on the podcast before, there's a lot of interesting creative things happening in the world of, of streaming, because there's a lot of niche. Um, and... Uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge has not one but two shows that are really popular and well-respected going on between Fleabag and Killing Eve. And she's also, you know, what I, I guess what one of the tips I found particularly interesting was this idea of working in different mediums and doing multiple projects because she has a lot going on. And I think it keeps you fresh, but it also is, you know, you don't have to limit yourself to just one kind of thing or one type of project. And I think even if you're not, you don't have multiple shows winning Emmys, maybe you just have two different things on your desktop that you're writing and that you hit a wall with one and you turn over to the other because you're like, okay, maybe I need to just change it up and get involved in a completely different kind of project and shake things loose a little bit and come back to that later. That's an old writing tip I remember hearing a long time ago um, that just kind of keeps you from feeling stagnant. And yeah, I mean, she's a she's an exciting, dynamic creative, and like I said, I think I think the streaming world and the TV world has created a lot of opportunities for that, um, for us to find unique voices. Um, I also think it's interesting. I found out that she is the only writer for this show. She writes every single episode. She has no writing staff. She just kind of bounces ideas off her with her director and producer, and I think that's kind of a cool. Uh, way of, um, I guess, having creative control over over aspect this aspect of her show. Um, it's very it English, from- too. Like, I can't imagine <laughs> in America getting... Well, it's just in America, it's always like, oh, well, you've never run a show before, so let's team you up with a right. showrunner and let's fill out a writer's room for you and we'll surround you with a whole bunch of people. And I feel like in England, it's like, oh, you've written a great thing. Can you write more of it for us? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe yeah. that's a stereotype. No, but- I... Well, either way, you're right, though. It's an extremely uncommon situation. I mean, that's not the way it usually goes. Usually there is a whole team and you get partnered with senior people. And part of that is like, I think even for creatives, when they're pitching or developing content or TV shows, they think about it like, I just have to have, you know, a strong idea of a sustainable concept, a good pilot, Mm -hmm. maybe a first season. Mm -hmm. And the writer's room, we're going to mine other great writers for ideas and for characters. And God, how many great shows? I know we've covered it on on the No Film School podcast before, but how many great shows start off one way and end up completely different? Or the plans for the pilot end up being scrapped because, you know, 
I think we even talked about how Jesse Pinkman was supposed to die in Breaking Bad. Can you imagine? Like these things change <laughs> wow. so dramatically. Um, and I think having one, I think it's fascinating. I didn't know that either. I think it's fascinating to have one creative steering the ship. And um, but I think for Killing Eve, she, do- she does hand it off to a different showrunner every season. But definitely Fleabag, it's all her. So I think it's extremely, it's an extremely personal um you know work for her and it's pretty amazing how it changed from season one to season two and how everybody's just catching up with it at season two but even with season one it was it was also an amazing it was an amazing six episodes as well yeah it's kind of cool it's like an auteur very much of television (laughs) yeah yeah exactly Uh, but also what i thought was really interesting in the article was that uh jason really found some interviews from her where she talks about working with experts and finding a priest i mean mm-hmm. finding a monk to really interview <laughs> to write the character and i think that is actually like something that like it's never too early in your writing career to start to start researching and writing from experts there's this fantasy that a writer is someone who like goes to a cabin in the woods and it all is born from their mind and they know all these things but actually like research right. and consultants is so huge i was working on my web series salty pirate which will be coming out this winter and uh it was about a type design company and so i found type design people because i was like i know it's a not little about, about a pirate it is n- there are no pirates <laughs> in salty pirate oh, man it is Meta- two people okay. who Meta- run i'll be excited well metaphor i'll try to be excited <laughs> no, fig- yeah. no literal pri- pirates but I mean, metaphorical pirates abound. Metaphorical. <laughs> um, okay. But I, you know, I had a surface level knowledge of type design. And one thing I hate in movies is when you can tell that someone just read the Wikipedia page and then like wrote the character based on like, like right. I notice it a lot with bike stuff because I'm obsessed with bicycles. And, you know, there'll be a person who's like a bike nerd in a TV show or even someone riding a bike. And I'll be like, that's just wrong. I just don't believe you. Like, you just, you know nothing of bicycles. And uh, I didn't want any type people watching the show and being like, you know nothing of typeface design. And it seems like typeface people would be like that. Um, So I I was really excited. And, you know, she goes on this whole thing of, like, she wanted to write a priest character that's not just hot, but also is, like, a real multidimensional struggling with faith priest. And... uh, and one way you do that is by going and meeting priests who are real multidimensional people and talking with them and consulting. And I think that I really, the more people can talk about like research and working with consultants, the better. I just right. want to highlight that point because I think we have, it's almost like an epidemic of not only do a lot of people not research or write about, I think the thing people research is other movies and TV shows. So we see so many times in movies and TV shows, the tropes from older classic movies and TV shows, the version of mental health as presented by other movies that have talked about mental health or the version of, of anything that was in the great classics that came before. It's, it's God being specific and exact and well-researched is is unique and amazing and teaches us and exposes us to things that we don't know already or that we haven't right. seen before, even if it exists in the world. I think that's an amazing point. And I would love to see more things like that. 
that feel like, oh my God, I'm really getting a window into this that, you know, when they do like those long form podcasts where it's a deep dive into a subject or a topic and you really feel like you came out of it having learned not just followed a story but the story became interesting because it was specific and it was true and accurate and i find that you know we'll get tv shows and movies that are executed so well but it doesn't feel specific and true it feels like it falls into a lot of cliche and familiar trope also she wrote that priest part for Andrew Scott specifically like that is who she based the character on um and I think that also adds a lot of dimension to to his journey in in the show in in such a special unique way knowing what he can deliver specifically knowing what he's capable of trying to push him maybe outside of his comfort zone into into reaches where he hasn't gone to before um putting him in sexy priest costumes uh, (laughs) all of those things I don't know that that was like the plan, but I think that was the plan. (laughs) Um, But also just to riff on your uh, comment about podcasts, you know, there's a big drama in the long form podcast space now where a bunch of audiobook authors are like, hey, you just did a podcast based on my book, but I also have an audiobook that people should be listening to instead. So now there's a big thing with citing your sources going on. So if you've noticed, if you're listening to like The Dollop or Last Podcast on the Left or Behind the Bastards or any of those really wonderful, I mean, those are the three I really enjoy, long form podcasts. They're now starting Mm -hmm. to cite their sources. All of them, usually at the end, they'll be like, hey, we really learned from these four books and you should check them out and stuff. And it's an interesting thing that's evolving there after some, I think somebody got like in a big fight with an author. I don't remember who. Um, All right. So, final topic for the week, Ask No Film School. This is a long question, so I'm going to try and condense it. But it is a question from Brian Bradley. First off, thank you for giving us your full name. Brian Bradley is... uh, is, is doing Thank something. you for asking the question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, but sometimes we get questions from like, you know, yes, someone yes. named just the letter X or someone whose screen name is like, <laughs> you know, fuckstick von clownstick. And you're like, I can't actually say that in a podcast. So it's like f- your full proper <laughs> name. Is, just did, but... Yeah. But I mean, not all the time. Yeah. I know. Um, So Brian Bradley has done something many people do, long career in TV, and then pivoted over to teaching at a high school. I know a lot of people who've done this. It's like high schools are building video programs. It makes sense. But you've switched high schools, and you're moving to a new school that's on a quarter system. So you only have your students for 10 weeks, and it's 45 minutes per day, so it's only 34 hours. So uh, there's no checking out gear. There's no coming into a lab at night. You've got 34 hours to teach them about movies. And the question is, what do you? Th- what part of the process would you focus on? What do you think is the important thing to teach if you only have about 34 hours to teach? And I have some thoughts on that, but I want to hear from you guys first. Because I have a feeling I'll riff a long time on that. <laughs> Um, I was looking at this and I was thinking, wow, 10 weeks, 34 hours, 45 minutes a day, that's not that much time to teach a lot of the technical stuff. And I think for a course like that, if I were to design it, I would center it around just the making of the experience of just making a film, a short film. Um, and I don't know, I remember when I first learned how to make short films, I, you know, it was a lot of just going out just jumping into the pool and just figuring out how to use some of the equipment. I would probably do like a short non-sync sound type uh, short project. And in between, I would, maybe for the first three weeks, I would 
focus a little bit about the technology, you know, about how to use set up the camera, how to use the camera. And then editing is going to take a long time. And I think learning how to, he didn't really specify uh, what type of editing kind of setup they have at that school, but if it's in class and if every, every single person has their own computer, then I guess that's, uh, yeah, you can spend all, you can spend the entire 45 minutes just, you know, up, uh, you know, syncing footage or like uploading footage. So, um, so I don't think you can get very deeply into the, um, the process, the, the editing process, the shooting process, any sound or music, um, post process, but I definitely think it could be an experience to create your first film, for a student to create their first film and to just realize how much, how much it takes, how much collaboration it takes, how much, um, planning it takes, um, I'm gonna change that a little bit. I guess I should start. We should start with pre-production, teaching the students how to like prep for a, a short, maybe, maybe, and then and then some of the technology, how to work with the camera and how to work with your team, and then um, getting into post. And then I guess we would have a screening at the very end. Um, I would really just focus it on the experience and the fun of like making a short project and getting your your first experience on it. Yeah, I don't like it. I mean, I think you highlighted well in your in your in your answer there how much there is you would want to try to cover right. that would be so hard to do efficiently or effectively. Um, I'm really curious. I'm excited to hear what Charles has to say because Charles I bet, <laughs> has a has a has a real plan in place and wrote out a curriculum. <laughs> but I like so yeah. to me, I just feel like my film school ish experience was which I think you stole it, right oh yeah I did actually st <laughs> I did steal <laughs> oh, yeah. some of my film school experience I went to undergrad and I did get a chance to like mess around with cameras and stuff in a in a you know film program in undergrad sort of but oh, cool. really my one of my best friends went to USC grad school for film um probably around the time Charles was there and uh he brought me in to be a producer on a couple of his projects, which you were allowed uh -huh. to do. Oh, and so I got access to all the learning. And so I get to be around everybody there on set. And then they brought me on to other things. So I got all this, you know, free film school education yeah. through yeah. being on their USC thesis film sets. And I would say what was cool about that, that I would think you would want to try to replicate is the problem is everybody wants to go to film school and learn how to make their own movie. They want to be a writer, director, or editor, DP. They want to do it all, and they want to have their own personal project and stuff. But what was cool about the way the thesis films and some of the other projects I observed happening at SC worked was that there was a director, but there was also someone doing every other little thing. There was someone who was doing art department. There was a line producer. There was an editor. There was a sound person. There was... I think it would be cool to have a school program where you set out from the beginning as a group and you just make one thing with your whole semester. Yeah. And yeah. the problem there is that there's only one director, right? And that's yeah. what everybody wants. But yeah. the advantage is that you see how the whole thing works together and how there's all these different pieces to the process and how there's all these different possible careers you can have instead of just saying, I want to be Quentin Tarantino. There's a lot of other jobs and there's a lot of other roles in the industry yeah. from a person who's making a schedule i guess the problem is that's your thing if you get the job of you know scheduling and ad and that's not what you <laughs> want to do 
but at least you get that knowledge and you could learn by watching how the other pieces come together. So my mm -hmm. answer would be somewhere in that. Then mm -hmm. again, I just add real quick, it seems so valuable to just get your hands on stuff at that stage. Like, yeah. how do I use a camera? So like, how do I use a camera? Yeah. How do I cut a scene in Premiere? How do I light a scene? How do I direct an actor? So like, there's some basic stuff that everyone wants to learn. So with that, I will just say I have no idea, Charles. <laughs> um, oh. So I'm actually, oh, go ahead. I, I was just gonna add actually, cause one of the classes I, I did take was just to partner up with one other filmmaker in your class. And the two of you are a two person crew. And that's when you sort of learn how to do everything. All of those from the, from the ground up, all of those things yeah. you have to do on set, how to collaborate with each other, how to communicate with each other. Um, and, and you know, how to, how to, how to make us tell a story well together with every every part of production and post-production. Um, but yeah, because it's such a, sh 45 minutes is such a short amount of time per day to be able to work on it. But um, I think with the right type of groups, group group configuration, it would be kind of really fun and perfect for, for, a, for a quarter, for a 10 week course. So I'm gonna go a slightly different direction. <laughs> okay, and, cool. And I'm gonna say, nice. so this is informed by having taught so I've been teaching film for about 15 years now. When I first started teaching film, I would very much have been on the like, all right, well, we're going to spend eight weeks on like learning how to do all this stuff. And then we're going to spend a week shooting every day. And then we're going to look at the edit and we're going to see. But one thing that's really started to hit me lately is like the easy tools are getting so good. Like, um, like for instance, I used to be like, all right, well, you need to understand everything manual on a camera and before you shoot anything. Now I'm much more interested in like, all right, well, let's shoot it on an iPhone and then let's look at it and talk about like what's frustrating to you about it. And then students will say things like, I mean, when I'm teaching high school students, they'll say things like, oh, well, I wish I wish I could have like made it darker because it, it was like making it too bright. And I wish I could control that. And then you teach them about how to control that on a real camera because they're frustrated by what the iPhone isn't doing for them that they want to do. So I used to be like, we're not even going to talk about the easy things. But it's like they all know the easy things. They all have the easy things. I actually taught like a group of seven to nine-year-olds how to shoot with iPads a couple of years ago. And I think it's more interesting to like let them use the tool they already know how to use hmm. and then talk to them about what's frustrating about that tool and then introduce like, oh, well, you could also light it or you could use a camera with an aperture and that will give you the control. So what I would actually design 10 weeks for high school students would be mm -hmm. like super iterative, like like a movie a week. Like nice. you're in groups of three or four, every Wednesday you're shooting something. Every Friday we're looking at it. We're talking about like, because one thing I taught this high school workshop over the summer and it was only five days. But what was really interesting about it is they were all so good at looking at the final results on day five mm -hmm. and saying, oh, if I were going to do it again, I would try X or I would try Y. And so if I were doing a high school thing now, I try and make sure we were doing something every week. So every week that next week they could try all the things where they were like, oh, yeah, I wish, and then maybe like, maybe the first five weeks, it's groups of three or four, they're rotating through jobs, and then maybe the first five weeks are on iPads or iPhones, uh -huh. and then, you you know, week four, you show them how Filmic Pro works, and then maybe week six, if the school has access to a Blackmagic or whatever, you're like, hey, and then this camera, you get to control your aperture and your focus, and and then you're building iteratively so that you can actually see if people are like really integrating the learning or not. So they're not editing in your class yet. Is it mostly just hands-on? No, I mean, I think they're editing, okay. but I think they're like, my plan would be like Monday is screenwriting, uh -huh. Tuesday's prep, oh, Wednesday shoot, nice. Thursday we edit, Friday we screen. Yeah, that's awesome. Every week for 10 weeks. Yeah. 
And like every week there's like a 10 minute like, here's a new thing that you can do in the edit room and then edit for half an hour. And then the next week I'm like, oh, hey, and you could also do this. And I would probably use Resolve because then they could have it for free at home if if they wanted to keep working at home without having to talk their parents into paying uh, for creative cloud. So, so and, they, they are editing yeah. on Resolve and doing are they doing color timing as well? Are you teaching? I mean, week eight, maybe <laughs> if one of the students was like, how yes. do I make it so that my, uh, that shot I did, it looks too blue because the iPhone didn't know yeah. what the color temperature was. And I'm like, ooh, yeah. well now you can hit that little color. But I mean, we just use the, what is it? It's cut and edit. We'd use the cut room in Resolve, which is the super fast, right. really simple editor. Nice. And that would be the way I would think about it because I used to be very much in the like, you have to learn all this stuff before you do it. But I think this young generation is very much like, no, yeah. can I just do things just do and it. learn from it? Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I like your so. I like your uh, your plan. I like your the focus on just doing it, jumping in, getting hands on experience, and discovering you know what you want to say with a camera or or with a film, and just getting kids like yeah. excited about making stuff. That's that's the that's, that's what my focus yeah. would be on. I had a feeling you would have a good answer, and you didn't disappoint. I, <laughs> if I was. I wish I was going to that film school now because, or I could go back in time and go to that film school because what's cool about it from the way I hear you describe it is that you could like have some students who are satisfied and maybe like, I don't, you know, they don't need to keep pushing, but then you might have one who is like, Hey, can you teach me how to also color time what I did? And can you teach me how to get better audio or can you teach me how, and then they want their project. They want to push it somewhere. Yeah. Maybe some of them are just like, yeah, use the tools. This is cool. Whatever. I'll post it on Instagram or YouTube. And then someone's like, no, Dude, I want TikTok. it to be more Are you kidding me? Right. Okay. <laughs> what, are you, I'm, what are you, old? Yes, I am. Yes, I'm old. I don't, I don't have TikTok. TikTok. I don't have Snapchat even. I don't know what it is. Uh, but yeah, whatever. Shoot on film. Damn it. <laughs> um. I, I, I will fully disclose that I installed TikTok. I watched one video on TikTok. I decided it was the perfect TikTok, and I deleted TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a really amazing short film. I'm actually going to show it in a narrative design uh, class that I'm nice. teaching because it is literally like in 15 seconds, it rolls up all of story structure. It's perfect. Wow. I'll tweet a, a link to yeah. it. Um, I'll just, you yeah. know, that reminds me, I just throw out that uh, like, I probably learned more through this thing called Channel 101 than I did through any film school or film program, which was a sort of a online festival, but we did an in-person screening once a month. And it was based in L.A. I think it still mm -hmm. actually exists. Um, this was a long time ago. That's where Dan Harmon came from, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's where Dan Dan Harmon and Rob Schraub founded it. And uh, those were the days when I was there. It's where Yacht Rock was. was those were the old days. And <laughs> a lot of really talented people who still work all across the industry came through that. And what we learned, what Dan Harmon kind of, what now everybody on the internet knows, but what only we in that group knew at the time was that this idea of a five minute TV show, he built the, it around, how do you tell a story in five minutes? Like, here's like, here's a story in five minutes. How do you shoot it in one week? How do you, it was actually film school. Like we were doing a weekly project and then we were our own audience and then we voted on them and the best ones we'd made more of, et cetera. But it was a great, like the way you're talking about your class, your model, it was a great way for us to learn, like tell a story quickly and actually execute it, like go out and shoot it and bring it back next week in time for the deadline and screen it and yeah. see what works, you know? And it was cool. We learned a lot. I'm a little jelly. I like, I feel like I missed something because I lived in LA when Channel 101 happened, but somehow I never knew about it. 
and uh, I'm I'm fully. Uh, I'll admit it. I, I got some jellies. Uh, yeah, well, but, you, you would have know. you would have loved it. I mean, you would have fit right in. You know, there were a lot of cool. Yeah, it was cool. People were yeah. doing cool stuff, and it was you know on their DVX 100s, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a fun time. It was a good way to learn, and uh, a lot of cool talented people kind of came through there. But it still exists. That's the cool thing. If you're in LA, you can still, I think, create, submit, go, and uh, watch, and learn. Charlene, thank you so much for joining this week. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you for having um, me. Now we will, now we'll do our plugs. You can. I have two books out. I have business and entrepreneurship for filmmakers. And today, Friday, Color Grading 101, my intro to color grading book comes out. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Charles Hain. You can read my articles at No Film School. And if you're into the tech stuff, I have a podcast called The Week in Film Tech. You can check it out at weekinfilmtech.com. This is Charlene Wong. I am a DP and sometimes director. You can follow me on Instagram at tinygoldfish. Uh, and this is George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. And please uh, rate us on iTunes, rate the podcast, leave a comment, um, subscribe. Check us out at our actual website, nofilmschool.com. We have a lot of new content going up every day. Um, some that we've discussed here, some stuff we haven't discussed here. Um, and uh, we're doing stuff on YouTube as well. So you can like and subscribe to our videos on YouTube. No Film School is our channel. And uh, I'm George Edelman again. At, uh, Twitter is at George Edelman. And uh, No Film School's Twitter is at No Film School. We will see everybody next week.